you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're in a study, if you're new here this morning, we're in a study called The Certainty of the Savior. Uh, and Luke, Luke was written for this reason, to help us be sure. He wants to cultivate trust. I, I, our trust of him, of, of God. He's writing to an individual by the name of Theophilus, in which he's writing in an orderly account. He's laying this down so Theophilus, who apparently had been renting his faith, now can start more owning his faith. And this morning we're going to consider something which I would say is the, the greatest battle that you and I face. It's the issue of, of trusting God. And that's what Theophilus is going through. I want you to consider this morning that when we think of the idea of trust, we're thinking about two beings or two entities in a situation in which one person has to trust another or somebody has to trust something. In other words, trust doesn't exist with only one person or one thing. Now think about this with me. You came here this morning and you found a chair and you sat in it. You had a trust that the chair would hold you up. You've, you've experienced this before. You know chairs. You're a chair connoisseur. And so you, you know what a good chair will do. It holds you up. You traffic in it all the time, the idea of trust. Matter of fact, you got in a car today. Maybe you were a passenger. You trusted the person would bring you to where you want to be church. As you began to make your way out of your neighborhood, you took a turn to one side or the other. You were on a, a road that you were passing landscape that you recognize. And as you came to church, you were convinced the person that you had trusted is a trustworthy person. We traffic in this all the time. If you were a driver, you trusted that a certain stop sign, if you took a left or a right, would lead you to a certain place and a certain road would lead you to here today. God has set up the world that you have to trust other people. You have to trust things. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. I heard a story, read a story this week. A nun who works at a hospital and goes and cares for people was riding in her car. And her car ran out of gas. And so she walked to a, a station and they said, we don't have any container. Uh, we only carry one and we've lent that out to somebody else. If you can find something to put gas in, then we will, uh, we'll fill that up, but you have to find it. And so she went back to her car. She'd worked at this uh, nursing facility for some time and she happened to have a bedpan in her vehicle. And so she took this bedpan and she took it to the convenience station and they put enough gas in the bedpan in order for her car to start. As she's taking it back and as she's pouring the contents of the gasoline from the bedpan into her car, two men passed by. One looked at the other and said, now that's faith. <laughs> when we think of the idea of faith, we naturally connect two entities together, believing something. But the question is, is the object that we're putting our faith in worthy? When we think of this idea, you're going to leave here today and you're going to pass by another car, you're doing 45 down the road and three feet away, there's somebody else coming in this direction. You're hoping they stay in their lane, you stay in yours, everything's fine. We do this every single day. Now, why is it 
If we can place our trust in drivers and cars and students place trust in teachers to teach them the right things and grade their tests right and employers and employees, you work during the week believing, hoping, trusting, having faith that the employer is going to pay you according to the scale wage you have, whether it's salaried or hourly. We do it all the time because that's the way God has wired the world. And yet you and I struggle to trust God. We trust people all the time. We trust ourselves. And I think that's the problem. We're going to look at a text today, and I'd ask you to do something as we venture into this. I would like you to consider something that you need more trust in God for. Uh, it could be anxiety has been redlining for you. It could be a financial situation. It could be a marriage. It could be a relationship. It could be a job. Could be all sorts of stuff. What I'd ask you to do is we start our time because you're going to find out today exactly how you can increase, increase your trust in God. But I want you to have an object in which you're seeking to trust God for. Something about you that needs to change. Is that how you trust God? I'd like you to write that down or put that on the, the table in your mind. Think of the situation you need to trust the Lord in because you're going to find out this morning there's a guy who had every reason to trust of that. Now, God was caller of Christ. He doesn't judge you on the basis of your ability to trust him completely. However, your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy is that we don't trust God like we should. I think we can all agree to that. And this morning, you're going to find out how you can increase your trust in God so that that issue, whatever's in your mind or what you may have written down, you're going to be able to deal with that in a faithful, God-honoring way. So if you're in Luke chapter 1, we're going to see uh, this individual. We're going to see a conversation that happens between an incredibly powerful angel and a priest. But before we do, we've got to do a little backstage work. We've got to think about where we've been. If you remember, there hasn't been a prophet from a, uh, a miracle from a prophet in 800 years by the time we arrive at our text today. There's not been an angelic visitation for 500 years. There's not been any kind of message from God in over 400 years. And as we've said in our teaching previously, this country is 346 years old. Think about that. That's an incredible distance from when God does something and he has been silent for 400 years as we arrive in our text. We arrive here, and I want to show you what we talked about last week. We're not going to labor the point, but the situation that we're going to read about takes place in the temple. And if you remember last week as we put the first slide up, I want to have you an understanding of what the temple would have looked like. This is the temple... In Jerusalem, it's called Herod's temple because he's the one who built it. And as we said last week, this is the court of the Gentiles. This is Solomon's portico. This is Antonia Fortress right here where the Romans would be. And this is the area on either side where the Gentiles could go. Only Jewish people could go in here. This is the woman's court. Then only the priests in this area and only the priest assigned for the day in this and in the Holy of Holies is on the back side. Let's go to the next slide, another image. And again, just reviewing from how we labored this last week. This is another picture of it. The priests could go into these different doors right here. One door was for the kindling, for the wood. 
Another door was for the new priest to go through and to bring water for the sacrifices. Everything had meaning. Everything had a designation. Everything had a purpose. The next slide, please. As we look at this from an aerial view, we talked about last week how the people would bring their animals into this area. The priests would gather the animals and they would go and they would slaughter them right there. It's a harsh word, but it's a reality to picture the need for redemption. As God is a holy God and the people aren't. And the distance that was created by sin has to be taken seriously. And therefore an animal would be sacrificed. And he'd be sacrificed on this altar right here. And we're looking at Zechariah. Zechariah was chosen. There are four different lots every day it was done. The third lot was to choose the priest that was serving that week would go into the holy place right here. Next slide. I want you to see what this looks like because our context in which we are reading happens right here. It's very important for us to understand. In this context, as the priest would be dealing, he would take coals off the altar and he would move in to this area right here, right in front of the curtain, right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was, in the back. A priest could only go there one time a year to represent all of Israel. But individuals would bring their sacrifices and it would make it this far. And then the priest, Zechariah, who had been a priest for many years, he was advanced in age, over 60 years old, never having a child of his own, but serving the Lord faithfully for his week of service. He has chosen to be the person who is going to take the coals off the altar and he's going to take them in and place them right here. And then he is going to place incense on top of that altar. And as the coals and the incense come in contact, the incense billows up and fills the area and the surrounding area of the temple with the fragrance of fellowship, communion. It was supposed to be a visible, physical representation of the communion that the people had in their prayers to God. It was supposed to represent that they have a relationship with him and he with them, not any other people group in the earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was present in this location and Zechariah could only go this far. But if you remember in the story, to the right of the altar, a being appears. On the back side here, there was the lampstand. Angel appears here. And somehow a, ca- a shadow is probably cast. See, Zachariah has never been in this area before to do this ceremony. You would only get a chance to do this once in your lifetime. This was a special moment, very intense, very serious. He is absolutely trained on what he's supposed to do. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And if you remember next week, it's amazing what the angel says. He says things like this, is that you will have joy and gladness and rejoice at his birth. He tells him he's going to have a son. His name is going to be John. It means God is gracious. And then he says that this baby is going to be great before the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit and turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God and go before him in the spirit and power of Elisha. Now remember, Elisha, Malachi, 400 years previously said there's going to be 
the prophet Elijah is going to come. It says, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's what your son's going to do, Zechariah. Can you imagine the weight of this? Can you imagine the intensity? An angel is coming to visit him. He's coming to tell him what he longed to see happen that a Messiah would come. This area right here, the temple, is unique to the people of Israel. It's unique actually to biblical truth. A rabbinical saying at this time said, the world is likened unto an eye. The ocean surrounding the world is the white of the eye. It's black is the world itself. The pupil is Jerusalem, but the image within the pupil is the sanctuary. Intense. This area was considered the center of the world to Jewish people. And if you think about it, not only does Zechariah have an experience here, we see Mary presenting Jesus as a baby to the rabbis in the temple area. We see Jesus teaching from the porches of the temple, sitting in the treasury, attending the festivals like the Feast of Tabernacles, directing the healed leper to go present himself to the priest at the temple and applying himself as the role of the mediator in the book of Hebrews to what the function of the temple was meant to do. What I want you to picture, this is the centerpiece of everything they understood their relationship with God to be. All of their hopes and dreams and aspirations rested in this location. This is where God was And this is the closest he could ever get to God because he could never pass the veil. But now there's an angel there. And now that you have the background of what's going on in the passage, after the angel says what he needs to say, let's consider how Zechariah responds. Look over in today's text, verse 18. It says this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. First thing I want you to consider this morning in the text is the request of Zechariah. As we've labored the point here, uh, it's amazing that he says, how shall I know? Very important. The word is gnosko, that idea of know. In other words, I need to have more evidence. I need to have experiential evidence. In other words, he's saying, because I am well advanced in years, I'm in my 60s, possibly 70s, so is my wife. They were righteous and devout, it says. We've already looked at that. From the, she's from the line of Aaron. He's from the line of Aaron. They're priests. They've done everything right. But to his mind, he can't get past the fact that he is old. 
is beyond the age in which he can have a child. And when he says, how shall I know this? It's as if he's playing poker and the hand that he is holding, he thinks isn't good enough. I need more. You know what his issue was? His issue was an awful lot like your issue, my issue. He didn't trust. But the difference is this. You have a priest in a temple doing what he's called to do, chosen specifically. An angel shows up and he asks for more. The request of Zechariah was astonishing. It was astonishing to Gabriel because how is it that you need more than you are getting right now? And notice what he says, and it'll lead us into more of the understanding. In verse 19, the astonishment of Gabriel. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. It's very important. Gabriel means mighty one of Jehovah. I want you to think about what the Jewish people thought of Gabriel at this time. Matter of fact, uh, we know that there are myriads of angels, uh, a number that can't be counted, Uh, It's easily understandable that there are more angels than there are people on the earth. There's two classes of angels. There's the faithful to God and there's the fallen from God. Gabriel is considered one of the uh, most powerful of the angels. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there's only two angels mentioned. There's Gabriel and then there's Michael. Matter of fact, Gabriel is the angel in Daniel chapter 8, 16 and 9, 21 who appears to Daniel. He appears to him. When we see Gabriel, very often he's bringing a message. And very often when we see Michael, he is the one doing damage. He's invoking the holiness of God on people. Within Judaism, just in Jewish thinking in general, They had quite a list of different angels, including Raphael. You only thought he was a mutant teenage turtle. But in the Jewish belief system, there was an angel named Raphael. In the book of Baruch, which was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between those 400 silent years, it talks about that they believed that Gabriel was the angel that actually destroyed Sodom. In Genesis 19, the Babylonian Talmud that was written between 500 BC and 350 BC talks about Gabriel as being the, Gabriel being the prince of fire that cooled the fiery furnace when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the furnace. They believed that Gabriel was this one. Cyprian suggests that the Angel Gabriel is the one who speaks to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, 20 through 21. But I'd like you to consider in Daniel chapter 8 what the message of Gabriel was. This is the first time that we see Gabriel. This is something Zechariah would have absolutely known as being a priest. He says, I, uh, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the, for the time of the end. And then you could read the rest of it. Zachariah would have known this. When he says, I am Gabriel, 
He thinks to himself, the last time that I've seen you talk, I've read about you talk, you were talking to Daniel over 500 years ago. I can imagine at this point he's shaking in his shoes. Can you imagine? What would have it sounded like? Thunderous. I am Gabriel. The force of the Greek has the idea of an emphatic. Kind of like when your parents would say, listen to me. And then he goes on there. I stand in the presence of God. Something you will never do. I do. I was sent to speak to you. I was spent to speak to you. This isn't just random, Zechariah. And bring you good news. You and Gelion, it's the idea of the gospel. I've come to give you the thing that you absolutely needed, wanted, look forward to. And you ask me for more because you don't believe me. Do you feel the weight of the text? Sometimes we read this and we read it way too fast. Now, what's interesting about this is, why does he rebuke him for asking for a sign? Think about this. The Sabbath was a sign given to prom- of God's promise of creation and his unique relationship with Israel to make them unique. It was a sign. God placed a sign on, the, on Cain promising to avenge his death if anybody took his life. A rainbow was given as a sign of God's covenant to Noah. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. God gave signs to Pharaoh of his, of his power in the plagues through Moses. Gideon asked for a sign when fighting the Midianites in Judges 6, 6 through 40. King Ahaz was encouraged to ask for a sign in Isaiah 7, 11. So what is it about this? that Gabriel takes such offense and astonishment. Very, very important. Look back at verses 5 through 17. Let me just run through this. This is very important for you to understand because this relates to you and your need, my need, our need to trust in the Lord. In verse 5, a priest, so we've got everything good there. He's a priest. He knows the word. He knows who God is. His wife is of the daughters of Aaron. They're righteous, as I've said, walking blamelessly, it says in verse 6. They're both advanced in years, verse 7. Chosen by lot, verse 9. The whole multitude is praying outside at the hour of incense. Everything is absolutely perfect. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. I think that's the key. What is Zechariah praying about? Now, we didn't have time to tease it out, but if you notice the verses around that, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. It is so easy to think, well, he was praying for a son. Really? Does that make sense? They're well advanced in years. There's no chance in his mind they're having a son. There's no reason to pray for a son. If he's incredulous when an angel shows up that he could possibly have a son, do you think he's really praying for a son? I don't think he's praying for a son at all. What is going on here? What did we talk about? The temple, what is happening? 
He is praying for the coming of the Messiah. He is praying for the the reconciliation of God with his people. He is considering and wanting and longing for their sins to be taken care of. And eventually, the reality of the Garden of Eden to come back in which creation and creator walk together. That's what he is praying about in the temple. Everything that they're doing is about that. And when the angel shows up, Gabriel shows up, he says, your prayer has been heard. What's the result of the prayer? All the things that we talked about, verse 14, joy and gladness, and you'll rejoice at his birth. This person that's coming is going to be the forerunner to the person you have been praying for and you're praying for right now. And when the angel goes through those five different things that he has do, five different qualities that your son will have, Zechariah says, I need more. That's why he's astonished. That's why he can't believe it. Compare the difference between Zechariah and Mary. Slide down a little bit more because in this context, Zechariah is a priest interceding for the people. He's in the temple. He's prayed for the deliverer to come. Outside people are praying the same thing. They're asking the Lord to accept their offerings, longing for a day in which they'll be reconciled to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when he shows up, says, do not be afraid, and gives him this message, and he says, I need more. But look at Mary. Look at verse 26. Very similar, but the backdrop of this is, and we're going to look at it more in the coming weeks, she's not a priest. She's not at the temple. She's not expecting God to do something at any moment. She is not married. Think of everything she's not. And yet in light of everything Zachariah is, That's the contrast. Gabriel shows up in verse 26. The city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now notice, just like with Zechariah, There's five different statements that run down through here of what Christ is going to be like. Zachariah was told what John the Baptist is going to be like. And now she is told what Christ will do. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Verse 33, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. Amazing. I mean, can you um, just feel the weight of that? Gabriel shows up and says this to her six months later. What's her response? Verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? What's the difference between Zechariah and Mary? Because Gabriel is astonished at his lack of belief and he doesn't rebuke Mary at all. I think the difference is this. Mary is asking, how do I proceed based on faith? She doesn't know how it will happen. 
but she believes it'll happen. Zechariah was asking, how is this possible? How could this possibly happen? Because I'm advanced in years, because of my age and my wife's age. Notice the difference between the two. One has faith, but doesn't understand all the details. The other says, in order to have faith, I need more details. You see the difference? This is where you and I live. This is where we traffic in every day. We've been given promises from God. And yet we struggle to believe those promises. And I think it's specifically because we judge on our basis what we want to have versus trusting that God has given us all we need. We might not understand the how, like Mary, but we need to trust in the what that God has given to us, in his word. That thing that maybe you wrote down as we started our time. Is your issue that you need something more from God or you need to trust what you already know about God? Because that's the difference. That's your greatest enemy. That's my greatest enemy. It's not needing more to believe God, but believing what I already know about God and let the anxiety that's in my life be swallowed up by his sovereignty. To not be angry with people, trying to control people because I believe God is in control. Do you see how that works? Your trust in God is directly seen in your relationships with others and how you deal with circumstances in life. And you can see clearly whether or not you're trusting God or you're trusting yourself. Mary's trusting God. She doesn't understand all the details. But she's not like Zachariah, who says, I need more in order to trust. Notice the hold you believe my and with about he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. Uh, feel that. One week he's supposed to serve. We don't know when this happened in his service, but it could be since he was able to, be able to speak, to be able to communicate, most likely also was not able to hear, because that idea of you will be silent in verse 62, he's making signs to people he's deaf he can't speak and he's deaf so the message that he's just been given you are going to have a son who's going to be the forerunner to the messiah and because he didn't believe he can't tell a soul he can't tell anybody outside the temple they know something's happened they don't know what has happened think about what he lost and it's not that it was conditioned on him. It says, which will be fulfilled in their times. My word, Gabriel says. In other words, this train is going down the track. It's going to get to where it's going to go. But Zachariah, you're not going to enjoy the ride. Because you didn't believe. You didn't have faith. He wasn't cut off. But the journey was made much more difficult because he didn't trust what he should have trusted all along. This isn't too hard for God. And so he's deaf. He can't speak. And so when he goes out from here, he's not be able to communicate to people what a joy that would have been, that God has been so kind and gracious. He's going to give me a son, and he is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Can you imagine the people outside of the temple, if they heard that? They would have been blown away. They'd been, yes, God is so faithful. And he could have been the tip of the spear 
of communicating what God in his kindness is going to do now after 400 years of silence, 500 years of no angel. There's an angel here. I just saw him. His name was Gabriel. He could explain it all. But he doesn't get to because he didn't trust. Think about how many things you and I miss in life because we simply don't trust what we know to be true. Simply because we walk away from a situation not realizing that God is going to enable us to trust him in the situation. What riches of his grace. What amazing aspects of his truth. What indwelling presence that we walk away from because we simply don't believe. We want to know how this is going to work. Tell us more. And we have everything we need because what we know about God is much more than Zachariah ever knew. We know of Christ. We have his spirit. We are way ahead of the game when it comes to that. Some of us aren't enjoying the ride because you're not trusting. You're not having faith. You're not having belief. You believe in traffic signs and you believe in staying in your lane and you believe in trusting teachers and employers. I do. But when it comes to it, the person we should trust the most is God. And we struggle. That's our greatest enemy. Whatever that thing was on the paper, whatever that thing is on the table of your mind, that is your biggest challenge today. How can you trust God more? It's not that we need more evidence. It's that we need more faith. Before we get to that, notice the joy of Elizabeth. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. The joy of Elizabeth. Think about how amazing that is that she gets pregnant. But notice how she can't share that with her husband vocally. He can see her going through this, but he can't hear her voice. All the things he missed out of because he didn't trust. Now he's not cut off and John the Baptist still comes. So you say, yes, what a win. But think about how it could have been different if he simply trusted. What joy he could have held him back. The greatest enemy that Zachariah had was the same enemy you and I have. Now, at the beginning I said, you're going to find out how you can increase your trust in God. So let's think about this. Uh, very quickly, and you can write this down. We said at the beginning, there are always two entities when it comes to trust. Two entities are two persons. You can't have trust without two entities. Think about this. Let's imagine your friend tells you they're going to give you a ride to school or a ride to work. How can you increase your trust of God? If your friend tells you that, they need to have three things for you to trust them. In order for you to trust those three qualities, first of all, uh, they need a want to. The second thing, they need a will do. And the third thing, they need a can do. In other words, they have to want to in their motivation. They have to be trustworthy as far as will they do it. And they have to have a car. They have to have the ability to do that. Right? Let's think of another situation. Person owns a company and contacts you and says, we have a great job for you. I'd like you to relocate to another state. And you say, well, okay, do I trust this person? In other words, is their motivation from what I know of them, 
Is it for my better? Do they have the want to? Do they have the, the character that I can trust them, that they're trustworthy? How well do I know them? And then are they the person making the hire? Are they the person who's the boss who's going to make the position available, make the budget available? Those three qualities are the same three qualities that you and I traffic with when it comes to God. Follow this. I think when it came to Mary, she knew the motivation of God because she knew he's going to send a Messiah. He's chosen the people of Israel. He's talked about his glory is preeminent. She knows that. He has the character, the will do. He has promised that he's going to send a Messiah and he has the ability, the can do. So when the angel shows up, she trusts because she knows his motivation, his ethic, and his power are all in line so that she can trust him. If you'll notice, there's one quality that Zachariah was missing. He certainly understood the priority of God because he's a priest. He understood the motivation, the want to. He's doing it in the temple. He's walking through the temple doing what he's supposed to do on the basis of God's motivation. He knows that the character of God is trustworthy. He believes that. He's a righteous and devout man. It says very clearly in the text. The problem he has is the ability of God, the can do. Do you have the power? I need more evidence. You see, this is the thing. If you're struggling, whatever that thing is you've written down or have in your mind, if you struggle with anxiety, your anger, you're struggling in your marriage, in a relationship, these three qualities, what is it that you're lacking? Do you not believe the motivation of God that he's for your best? Do you think God's after you? Then you need to get into the scripture and see how God is for himself and therefore for you, his image bearer. If you struggle with trusting God in his character, you need to see how people have trusted God for thousands of years. And he is trustworthy. If that's your challenge, and if it's a situation in which you just don't know if God has the ability, God doesn't have the can do, you need to read stories about that. And if you focus on these three qualities in your relationship with the Lord and get into his word and let these things be soaked up, I guarantee you, your trust in God will grow. That's it. You spend time in prayer, spend time in the word. And that's exactly what the lesson this morning is all about for Theophilus and for us. Trust the Lord like Mary did. Not like Zachariah did. Trust what he's given you. Walk in what he has given to you already. Don't act like you need more because he's given you everything you need for life and godliness in his word.